Truth Espresso, episode 38. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome. I hope you are having an excellent day. But the topic for this episode is one that we haven't really gotten around to yet here on Truth Espresso. The title of this episode is Why Can't I Spend Monopoly Money? Yes, why can't I spend Monopoly Money? And by Monopoly Money, I do mean the money that you get in the game of Monopoly. Remember when you were a kid playing the game of Monopoly? And as you were winning, you wished you could spend those thousands on real stuff instead of plastic houses or plastic hotels or deeds to fictional properties. Come on, you had to have wished or said that at some point in your Monopoly playing childhood. But let's stop and think about this for just a second. Why can't I spend Monopoly money? Why can't we spend it like those green dollars, those green pieces of paper in our wallet or purse? Let's compare Monopoly money to those green things that we make liberal use of every day and ask the question, why, what makes Monopoly money different from these green things? Number one, they're both made of paper. Well, if they're both made of paper, then why does this green thing command the power to be able to spend on things that I need or want, like Starbucks coffee or a microphone for podcasting? Why is it that I can trade these green pieces of paper in my wallet for something I might want, but those colored pieces of paper with the same numbers on it in the game of Monopoly are utterly worthless for that? What's the difference? They're both made of paper. And number two, they both have different dollar denominations. So if having different numbers makes those green pieces of paper worth different amounts, then why don't the numbers on Monopoly money make them worth different amounts? Why can't I take at least the $500 bill in Monopoly and trade it for a stick of gum? Why is it that I can't buy anything with it except in the rules of the game? And number three, they both have a face or some picture on them in the middle. Maybe that is what stamps them with the ability to buy things. But no, they both have that. And maybe if the Monopoly money had the faces of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Andrew Jackson on them, maybe that would make them be able to buy things. But no, that wouldn't work either. So number four of how those green dollars 
are the same as monopoly money is that they are both in limited supply. Actually, when we think about it, there are much fewer monopoly game dollars than there are real U.S. dollars in circulation. So if that's the case, if monopoly dollars, the dollars from the game of monopoly, there are much fewer of those. And if you add up all the numbers on all the monopoly game dollars and you compare that with the trillions and trillions of those green pieces of paper that we use for money, you would think that monopoly money would be worth a lot more because there are fewer of them. Is that really what determines what makes those green pieces of paper command goods and services in the economy can get you your frappuccino or your stick of gum or a tank of gas to go to work and back? No, that must not be it, at least not in and of itself. So all of those similarities between monopoly money, that it's made of paper, that it has dollar denominations, that it has, that it has a picture in the middle, or even the comparative scarcity of it, that, that, that doesn't make monopoly money work on par with those green pieces of paper. So what makes them different? Where do the green pieces of paper that we use for buying and selling things come from? Well, you say they come from the government, and the government is what bestows on them the value to buy things. Is that so? Now, I'm not questioning that they don't come from the government, or more specifically from the Federal Reserve Bank, that acts as a branch of government. I know that there's various debates on whether the Federal Reserve is a private bank or a branch of the government or whatever, but is merely coming from the government what gives these pieces of paper the ability to buy things? Does our government that issues them have access to some magical money dust that they sprinkle on these green pieces of paper that give them divine power to be used as money? You know, kind of like when Peter Pan sprinkled pixie dust from Tinkerbell on Wendy, John, and Michael and told them that they could fly if they only think of the happiest things. You know, it's the same as having wings. And if maybe thinking of the happiest things is what helps money buy things, well, sometimes if people are thinking the wrong things, they find themselves out of money. But that's beside the point. Just what is it that makes these green things buy things? Despite newer printing technology that tries to thwart counterfeiting and allows you to read things when holding up those green rectangles to bright light, they really are just paper, like, well, monopoly money. So, when we compare the material makeup of monopoly money and U.S. dollars, there really is no material difference that qualifies one to be money and the other not. The difference has to be something else. So, if it isn't magical money dust, what is it? 
Well, to figure out that what is it factor, that what is it that makes green thing, green pieces of paper, at least in the United States, other countries might use other colors, but obviously there's nothing magical about the color of the paper that makes them work to buy things. So we need to break down this what is it factor that makes our money, our currency, our green pieces of paper valuable in the minds of people trying to sell us goods or the things that they do. Let's break this down and look at a few points here. So first of all, we need to define what money is. And then, second of all, we need to look at examples of money in history or even examples of what has been used as money both in history and even today. There are things other than currency or paper or even bits, electronic bits that represent paper now being used as money even today. So we need to look at examples of those. And then third, we need to determine the qualities that make a good money. And then we can put even, you know, our green pieces of paper, those friends that stick in our wallets and leave our wallets faster than we can keep them from flying out. We need to even put those to the test to determine if those are the best forms of money to secure our value and be able to save and store wealth. So, number one, as we break this down and really dig into why we can't spend monopoly money, what is money? Just what is it anyway? Can we come up with a good working definition of money? Well, as I have looked at various definitions of money from various economists, sometimes those definitions can be a little bit confusing. And so, I came up with my own layman's definition. So, perhaps you could take this with a a grain of salt or a grain of copper or a penny or something like that. So, just what is money according to Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Spresso? So, this is how I define money. Money is any good, whether tangible or intangible, whose primary use is as a medium of exchange. Money is any good, whether tangible or intangible, whose primary use is as a medium of exchange. So let's break down that definition. Yes, I keep saying break down. I'm sorry, I'm at a loss for words, but let's break down that definition. So the first part of it, I carefully picked every word in my definition to communicate certain truths. So, first of all, I said that money is any good. So, money is, number one, a good on the market. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, no, money is not a good. Money is what you buy goods with. Well, you like to have food in your refrigerator You like to have clothes in your closet. You like to have shoes to put on your feet. And you like to have money in your pocket. If it's something that someone can provide you that you seek after, 
and it's a it's a thing it's not it's not really a deed in and of itself then it, then i say that it can qualify as a good and is it, i think it is important to think of money as a good so that we're not led astray by really bad definitions of money that might be provided by the powers that be to get you to do the things and use what they want you to use for their own benefit and not yours. So money, first of all, is a good on the market. It may have different uses. It may have its use only to trade for other goods, but money of itself is a good. And then I said money is any good Number two, whether tangible or intangible. So why did I say tangible or intangible? Because we need to keep up to date with modern paradigms where money may not necessarily just be those pieces of paper. Money can also be a number in your bank account that represents a number of those pieces of paper. And if you withdraw money from your bank account that is stored digitally, then the bank can deduct from that digital number and give you some pieces of paper. So it's not like we can just say that you get, you just got free money and then saw a number reduced. The, the money there actually does have some check and balance, at least a little bit of it. I can argue that there's not enough in the banking world or in the economy over the value of those numbers. But that's why I say money is tangible or intangible. You can touch the pieces of paper or you could touch, say, gold or silver. Or you can have electronic representations of both those green pieces of paper, those Federal Reserve notes, or you can even have electronic representations, digital representations of gold or silver today. And so money is any good, number one, that is tangible or intangible, number two, and then number three, whose primary use is a medium of exchange. So let's get at that point number three. I said primary use. I didn't say whose only use, whose sole use. No, this is the primary use. So it leaves open the idea that something can function as money while also having other uses. So let's say that someone did use candy as money. And, you know, that actually is true. There have been people in other countries that used candy from the United States as money. And so they could exchange candy for something else or if they were if they had a hankering for some sweet stuff they could just suck the candy down and it would be gone but if candy could have been used as money the most common use the primary use of it would be to trade for things but it has other uses and that's why i made sure to say that money is the primary use of this good, not the only use. And I believe that that's important because when we get down further and talk about what makes a good money, usually that will be something that has more than one use. 
Okay, so continuing on with breaking down our definition of money, it is any good, whether tangible or intangible, whose primary use is number four as a medium of exchange. So, what does this mean? Well, let's go back to a barter economy. Let's say that someone had shells and they wanted a hat. And so they would trade shells, beautiful shells that they find. Maybe, let's say, 20 shells would get someone to trade them in exchange for a hat. But then, let's say you want something to eat. Could you cha- exchange that hat for a sandwich or maybe two sandwiches or three sandwiches? Whatever would make sense for an exchange rate between a hat and a sandwich. So now we're talking about a barter economy where you take certain things that, you know, like a hat has to stand on its own, giving someone a half a hat. Is not really going to work. You got to have a whole hat. It's got to be in good condition or mint condition. And depending on the condition of the hat or the size and type or color, it might command how many shells you get or how many sandwiches you get. And so that would be considered a barter economy where people just exchange one good for another. And it's hard to tell how many shells could buy how many sandwiches or how many shells can buy a hat. And there's a lot of inexactness to that. How many hats can buy shells or sandwiches? And what if someone had only 10 shells and you wanted shells and to trade your hat? Um, you're kind of left high and dry to make a fair exchange there. And so, that being a, a barter economy, money is something that makes exchanges a lot easier because money is what is called a medium of exchange. Its primary use is as a medium of exchange. So, its primary use is to be one good that's used as a pricing mechanism. An intermediary good that's used to facilitate the exchanges and the pricing structure of other goods and services. And so you can determine the hat shell price or the hat sandwich price or the shell sandwich price if you have some other good. That is used as money, that's used as a middle good, a medium good to exchange other things. And so that is my definition of money. Once again, money is any good, whether tangible or intangible, whose primary purpose, whose primary use is as a medium of exchange. So that's the definition of money. And so, as we define money, we can start to put to the test why can't we spend monopoly money? So, the second consideration there, after we define what is money, we now ask the question what has been used as money, both in history and even in modern times? Maybe in other countries besides the United States, but you'd be surprised to find out that there are things used as money or currency that are not those green pieces of paper, even here in the United States. 
So let's look at some of these. And I went to two different websites. You can find quite a few articles giving lists of things that have been used as money. But I thought I'd go to some websites that would talk about some strange things. At least they're strange to our minds. They wouldn't have been strange to the minds of these people who actually use them. But the first website, or rather the first article, is entitled 25 Strangest Things Used as a Currency. This is from the website list25.com. And I will include a link to this article in the show notes. And so, 25 Strangest Things Used as Currency... This article lists these in descending order, and I'm not going to list them all. I just picked two different ones. So, number 24 of the 25 strangest things used as currency was salt. Salt? Well, yes, salt was treated as currency during the times of the Roman Empire. And when you think about it, salt definitely had value at the time. Now, when I say salt, you're probably thinking of little white grains in a salt shaker that you might use to put on your food. And yes, that is salt, but salt wasn't really in that finely industrialized form at the time. And remember, during the Roman times, you did not have refrigeration. Refrigeration actually has not even been around for a hundred years in the United States or elsewhere. It's really been around only for about six, 70 years, at least off the top of my head. I think that's about you know how it's been around, at least on a wide-scale basis, industrial, industrially, refrigeration. Because you'd see shows back in the 1940s or 50s where people might have a large block of ice. There would be a a guy who would deliver a large block of ice and put it in the refrigerator, which was just a big box to kind of keep the cold in until the the ice melted. And that is how a refrigerator worked. But I digress. I'm spending too much time on this. But to explain why salt was a rather valuable thing during the Roman Empire, salt was used to preserve food. You couldn't stick it in the refrigerator. You had to take a bunch of salt and cover it all over your meat. And that would be how you could preserve it as long as possible. Not as good as a refrigerator or freezer, but it was better than leaving things out in the desert sun to dry and maybe it might last a few days longer. And of course, people used salt for seasoning just like we use it today. And so think of blocks of salt and people in the Roman Empire might trade things in standardized blocks of salt. And number 19 from the 25 strangest things used as currency that I picked out is beaver pelts. (laughs) Okay, so obviously there's some effort put into this. You have to find beavers, you have to hunt beavers, you have to skin them, and you have to take their skins and dry them and tan them. But after doing all that work, 
You have something that can be used. Well, why would people use beaver pelts as currency? Well, if you lived in a an area where you might need uh, warmth, say coats, you know, fur coats, the fur from beavers and their really thick skin would make for some nice coats to keep you warm. And then, of course, hats the beaver pelts would be used for making nice, warm, and durable hats. So if you have a bunch of pelts, you can sell them to clothing makers, or you can trade them as currency to someone who might make them into coats and hats. And so the beaver pelts would be a fairly standardized size that can make for a decent money. And now I want to go to another article called 11 Crazy Things Used as Currency Around the World. Uh, this is from a website called brightside.me. And I'll include a link to this one in the show notes. Now, this article lists the 11 crazy things used as currency around the world in ascending order. And so I'm going to pick three things from this list. The first one is tea bricks. Tea bricks? Well, tea bricks, you know, think about countries where tea is the staple drink, where almost everyone in the country drinks tea or uses tea as an ingredient in cooking food. And so then when something like that is so commonly demanded, then if you have tea formed into bricks of standardized sizes, that can be used as a currency. And so tea bricks were used as a currency mostly in East Asian countries for, you know, making tea, of course. <laughs> And number eight from the list was seashells. Now, I mentioned shells before. Shells are very common, actually. They were actually very commonly used as a currency, as a money in quite a few places around the world at some point in time. Most places around the world, I think it was at least four out of the five continents, <laughs> which would probably exclude Antarctica. So, seashells definitely have their place in history as a form of money. And when you think about it, it does kind of make sense. Now, if you live near the beach, you can find seashells all over the sand for the picking. But, you know, if you have been to the beach or live near the beach and you go walking along the coastline and you're looking for seashells, not all of them are in good condition. You'll find plenty of fragments and you'll find a lot of really common ones, like little small white ones. But, you know, if you want one that would make a good currency, it's probably going to be a really pretty one with an intricate design. And, of course, make sure it's completely intact and think people could wear them as jewelry. So that's why seashells would make an excellent currency or money. And if you didn't know, there are actually still some places today that still use seashells as money. Number 10, get ready for this one, Parmesan cheese. <laughs> now, where do you think Parmesan cheese would be used as money? 
Well, how, how about in the country of Italy, where cheese is all the rage? Cheese is used in quite a few dishes in Italy. These Italians, especially in northern Italy, really love their cheese. In fact, there's one bank in northern Italy that has a bunch of yellow bullion in their vaults. But this yellow bullion is not gold. This yellow bullion is, in fact, large wheels of Parmesan cheese. And people can actually make loans with cheese, Parmesan cheese, as collateral. So, yes, even cheese can be used as money, and even today. <laughs> so, we've seen some things that have been used as money. And think about it, paper money is kind of a new concept. Paper money hasn't been used as money very long in the grand scheme of things in history. And I would say that there are actually some good reasons for it. Of course, one of the reasons would be that the printing press has not been around very long. And so, being able to mass produce a currency in paper has not been around historically very long. But I would also argue that paper money has its problems. What? You're trying to tell me that there are problems with those green things in my wallet? Well, no, I'd say you can continue to use them as money. If you go to the grocery store today, they're not going to turn you away for using those green things as money. In fact, if you're not you know, using your credit card anyway, they're not going to turn that down. You're still going to be able to buy things. I'm just saying that in principle, paper money has its problems and the problems have to do with abuse by the powers that be. And that's going to be the topic for a future episode. So let's ask the question now. First, we defined what is money, and then we asked what has been used as money. Now, let's finally ask the question, what makes a good money? Notice I didn't say what makes a money. I said what makes a good money. What constitutes the best form of money? And there are five attributes that make something the best kind of money. If something has all five of these, they make the best form of money. It doesn't mean that something that lacks in any of these can't be used as money, but these five things dictate something that will last, that will stand the test of time, as a good money, as something that is desirable to have as money, that's reliable as money. So, number one, what makes a good money is if it's relatively scarce. So, let's consider the scenario. If you were to walk down the street and go find a cobblestone driveway, and you were to pick up one of those stones from the dirt, and it's among, let's say, several tens of thousands of its friends that form that stony driveway, and then you were to come up to someone and say, could I buy a sandwich from you with this rock? They would probably laugh you to scorn. Why is that? Because, you know, if that person that has the sandwich that you want to buy can just simply walk up and pick up another rock a lot like yours from the ground. 
and say, well, I've got my rock here. Why do I need yours? Why do I need to give up a sandwich for your rock when I can just get one of my own? And so relative scarcity is what makes a good money. And I mentioned seashells. Those who live near the seashore would be able to have more access to finding beautiful seashells and use them as currency. But of course, those would circulate as people want those beautiful spiral gems from the ocean. And then the economy, even more inland, might have just as much of a supply of beautiful seashells going around as the seashore. But they're not as common like a beautiful, flawless, colorful, spiraled seashell would be far more scarce than some little pebble that I pick from a cobblestone driveway. And so that's what makes seashells more scarce than those little rocks. And so relative scarcity is one attribute that makes a good money. And number two, divisible. So let's consider that rock from the cobblestone driveway. Now, you might be able to break it in pieces, but it would be pretty difficult to break it in precisely the size you want. Let's say someone actually did accept it, but let's say you wanted to buy a stick of gum, and let's pretend that that little rock would buy two sticks of gum, but you only wanted to buy one, and you wanted to keep the other half for later to buy something different. You wanted to go to a different vendor and buy something different that was worth a half a rock. So how do you do that? If you want to break that rock, you might try to break it with another rock or with a hammer and chisel and it might break into little pieces that would be pretty much worthless in exchange. And so a rock is not very divisible. So the rock, for that reason, also would make it not a good money. And number three, what makes a good money is if it's fungible. Fungible? You mean like I got to find moss on it? Or, you know, I got, if I walk on it, it's going to give me athlete's foot? No, that's not what fungible means. It doesn't mean it has fungus on it. It means that one unit of it is just as good as another unit of it of the same size or same weight. So let's even bring in our friendly green pieces of paper U.S. dollar bills. They're fungible because a $1 bill has the same value in the market as another dollar bill. If you have two dollar bills in your wallet, they should be able to buy the same thing. The price of something might say that it's a dollar, and so you can take either one of those and pay for it. You don't have to look for the crispest one dollar bill. You can take either one and buy it, buy your item, and it's worth a dollar. And notice that that can often pair along with that second point about being divisible. So even our U.S. dollar friends are divisible, but maybe not in the way that you think about it. It's not like, you know, you can cut a $10 bill in half and then each half acts as $5. No, it's divisible in that you can go to someone who has two $5 bills and give them the 10 and then 
that person would give you back two fives and the fives are worth the same as each other and they're both together worth the same as the 10. So that's both divisibility and then fungibility. So divisibility is that you can take your 10 and split it into two fives and take those fives and split them into five ones. And fungibility is that each of those units, each of those ones, each of those fives or each 10 is worth the same as any other of that same size or weight. And number four, what makes a good money is if it's durable. Now, let's think of if you were to use bananas as currency. (laughs) Now, bananas can be relatively scarce. They're certainly divisible if you take a good knife and you can easily cut them in half or quarters. And they're pretty fungible in that one quarter of a banana is pretty much just as good as any other quarter. But bananas are not durable. You leave them out for a few days or a week and they start to brown and maybe you want them brown, but you leave them out later without using them and eventually they rot and attract flies and they're not really good for eating anymore. You got to throw them away so they lose their value if you keep them too long. And so if you had to use bananas as a currency, as a money, they really discourage savings. You got to spend them pretty quickly. And so a good money is durable. A good money allows you to save it for as really as long as you'd want until you're ready and willing to spend it. And number five, last but not least, a good money has utility. So by this, I mean that a good money has functions in and of itself, in the makeup of itself, that is more than just as money. In fact, when we looked at our list of strange things used as money or crazy things used as currency, they had uses that were not just for exchange. And in fact, historically speaking, that is why they were used as money, because they had uses. Let's take seashells, for instance. Now, seashells might not have good uses other than, say, jewelry. Someone might want to make earrings or a necklace out of them or a bracelet. So, they have that going for them. They can be used as currency and they can be used for decorations. And, of course, tea bricks being used as currency are also used for making tea. And Parmesan cheese, likewise, could be eaten. Salt was for preservation and seasoning. Beaver pelts was used for making coats and hats. So all of these things have uses. And that is what makes a good money. Now you might be thinking, well, what other use do my green pieces of paper have other than as money? Yes, they are used as money right now, but according to my list of what makes a good money, they kind of lack on that number five point. They could even suffer a little bit on number four, durability, because they could get wet, they could get ruined, they could get crinkled and ripped. They're not very durable. They don't have other uses, so 
The reason we use those green pieces of paper as money must have other reasons than what I list here as what makes a good money. So now let's consider two things that have been used as money much longer than anything else, much more reliably than anything else, and that is gold and silver. So let's consider this gold and silver have all of the qualities that make a good money. Are they relatively scarce? Yes. Gold is more scarce than silver, and that's what makes gold also command a higher price per ounce than silver. But both gold and silver have enough relative scarcity that you're not going to be able to just walk along the street, find a little piece of silver, pick it up, and buy something with it. Especially the same with gold. If someone dropped a piece of gold on the road, someone's going to find it pretty quickly and stash it away. Gold and silver both are divisible. They are soft metals that can be melted at high temperatures and shaped into different things. They can be shaped into coins or they can be shaped into blocks. You know, because they can be shaped into a lot of th- different things, they are also divisible. You could take a large block of gold or silver, melt them down into, let's say, 20 coins. And that's what makes them a good money in that they're divisible. They are also fungible because gold and silver can be purified. They can be heated and have all the impurities removed. And so because of that, even if they're used as alloys, one ounce of silver is just as good as another ounce of silver. And the same thing with gold. So gold and silver are both very fungible. How about durability? Are gold and silver durable? Well, yes. I mean, they're virtually indestructible. Now, silver can corrode, but not by accident. Silver has quite a bit of durability to it, but gold is even better Gold just does not tarnish like silver can, and silver doesn't just tarnish that easily. So gold and silver are both very durable metals, and the fact that they can be melted, as I said before, and have their impurities removed, that makes them very durable. Because think about it, gold and silver have been used as money and for decorations for thousands of years, actually. So that makes them very attractive as money. They keep their value. They're not, they can't be reproduced. They can be melted and fashioned into whatever shape that anyone needs them to be used. And they're durable. Now, the last consideration for gold and silver is, do they have utility other than as money? Now, if you've been to the nearest K jewelers or other jewelers, you know this for certain. Gold and silver are shiny, beautiful metals that are worn as jewelry for rings and necklaces and earrings and bracelets and other things. But gold and silver both have their other uses besides jewelry. Silver has been used in silverware. That's where the term silverware comes from. Spoons and knives and forks used to be made of silver until we found cheaper and more solid metals to be used for that purpose so we can 
keep the silver for other uses. And silver has also formerly been used in dentistry. Now, some dentists might still use silver for filling cavities, but there are better things now. And so, silver is spared that and can be used in things like mirrors because I've read that silver reflects light better than most other things. So you might find some silver in mirrors. Uh, silver is used in various industrial alloys for making products. You might ha- even have some silver in your car. Uh, silver is used in making batteries, and of course, I mentioned jewelry. Now, what about gold? Gold is certainly used for jewelry, but gold is also used in a lot of electronics. Gold is an excellent conductor of electricity, and because it can be shaped easily, you might actually find some gold in your USB drives or any kind of USB prong for connecting one device to another. Now, if you think that you've hit the jackpot because there might be some gold, you know, there's the the gold there is such a trace amount. It's not you're not you're not getting a deal on having more gold there than your device is worth. So don't get that idea. So gold is used in electronics and communications, transmitting digital information, uh, circuitry. Gold has been and still can be used in dentistry. Of course, not as much today with with the kind of fillings that we have today. And so gold is spared that for other uses. And of course, gold is used in jewelry. Gold is very much prized in jewelry too. So gold and silver passes all of that criteria for what makes a good money. So what about the U.S. dollar? Well, as I mentioned, the U.S. dollar does not quite have the record of passing all of those features that make a good money. So then you might ask the question, why do we use these pieces of paper for money instead of gold and silver? If gold and silver, in fact, make a better money. Well, that's a history lesson for the next episode. So, stay tuned and put on your seatbelts as we look at the history of money and we explore more the topic, why can't I spend Monopoly money? Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 